Welcome to the Way of the Bible podcast, inspiring and empowering Christians of all measures of faith to simply believe God and follow Jesus. Join in with our host, Bible teacher and guide, Dr. Philip Zimmerman, as he explores the paths through Scripture that lead to life in the will of God, being joyful always, praying continually, and being thankful in all circumstances, simply by believing God and following Jesus. And now, Dr. Z. Welcome again. This is Dr. Philip Zimmerman, Dr. Z. And you've joined me for episode number 096 of Way of the Bible podcast. So glad to have you with me today. This is our final of eight episodes in our 12th mini-series entitled Shepherding the Sheep, 1 Timothy to Hebrews. On this episode, we're going to take a walk on the beach with Dr. Z. Thanks again for meeting me at the beach house for this full sun, clear sky, noonday walk on this unbelievable spring day. It's 77 degrees right now, going up to a high of 81 with a light, cool coastal breeze out of the west. The surf is just lapping for our arrival. The Emerald Coast colors of the water are eye-popping, and the Great Atlantic Sargassum Belt has not reached the Panhandle coastline. Praise the Lord. Perfect day to be with the perfect people to share this perfect moment together. By now, you know the drill on these beach walks. I'll meet you at the back porch to get sunscreened and your sunglasses and hats on as the glare off the sand and the water are both blinding. I I do highly encourage sunscreen, hats, and sunglasses. Well, it looks like we're all here and ready to go, so let's head out to the beach and we'll start our walk east today with the wind at our back keeping us cool as we go. You'll notice I've had set up several large canopies with beach lounge chairs, towels, drink stations, and, of course, a touch of South Louisiana hospitality. Under that massive tent over there at the back are a couple of Louisiana master boilers who volunteer to treat us to some Cajun-style feasting on the beach when we return. Boiled shrimp and crabs and grilled flounder, steamed veggies, and salad are on the menu. You likely just got a big whiff of that shrimp and crab boil rolling in those huge pots just now. I know that, because I did. Can't wait to share a beach feast with you. But first, we'll take a walk to work up an appetite. Well, we've made it to the water. What do you think about that? This never gets old, and is one of the reasons I keep coming back. But more on that in a moment. On our last beach walk, we talked about the mystery of Christ revealed in the books of Romans to 2 Thessalonians and the fact that we were literally born again in the Spirit, found in Christ, free from accusation and condemnation, adopted by God into His family and His children, and promised an inheritance that will not disappoint. We also discovered that we are to live with an eager expectation of the imminent return of Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies of sin and death into glorious resurrection bodies. Initially as spiritual bodies upon his aerial return in the resurrection of the dead in Christ first, and then those who are still alive snatched up to meet the Lord in the air together, right? And then following the wedding supper of the Lamb, we'll be given our physical resurrection bodies and return with Christ to earth as he comes to judge the world and redeem Israel in their time of severe testing. Of course, we'll get into that as we get into the book of Revelation. I'm learning to live daily with that expectation. And I can say that expectation has changed a lot of my behaviors. Before we get into Paul's teachings, I thought today would be a good day to give a big dose of my personal testimony. In our last mini-series, I personally took great strides in understanding what happened to me when I had my conversion experience. 
And in this mini-series, I think I finally discovered what post-conversion life is supposed to look like, which upon personal reflection is pretty strange thinking, given I've been a born-again believer for over 25 years. I've also come to know over these 25 years that God is continually sanctifying me to deeper levels of faith through trials and testing. And many of these trials and tests, I, I confess, I've failed miserably trying to hold on to the world or what others have said instead of just resting in the Father's constant presence. And over these last past eight weeks, I've let go of a lot that I used to see and cling on to. And I'm beginning to hold more firmly to those things that are unseen and eternal. Well, look at that. Right there. Right. Just past that first sandbar. Is that... It is a shark. It's a shark. I'm serious. Uh, yeah, I think it. Yes, it is. Yes, it, that's definitely a shark out there. The water is so clear. Its body is unmistakable in those swales as they rise above the sandbar. Here we are on a pleasant stroll along the beach. I'm just about to start my testimony and how I've grown over the past few months. And then a shark appears in the water. <laughs> Perhaps this is God's way of reminding me our enemy, the devil, is constantly cruising in the spiritual realm, always looking for an opportunity to take a bite out of us or out of our testimony. So believe me, I'm going to be a little more cautious as, as we go along here. And just remember that they're out there when we get back and hear those waves calling our names after lunch. That, that thing is huge. That thing is huge. Where was I? Oh, that's right. That's right. Hanging on to eternal life while letting go of the temporal. Here's a little bit of my testimony. I was raised Catholic, seventh of eight kids, and believed in Jesus at a very early age. Went to Catholic school through the fifth grade before being transferred to a public school. I willingly submitted and believed in the Catholic rituals that led to confession, first communion, catechism, and, of course, my confirmation. I served as an altar boy, helped around the nuns' parsonage in the priest's rectory, and had inklings of myself of one day becoming a priest. (laughs) You never know what's going to happen when you grow up. Near the end of 8th grade, and I was, of course, in public school by this time, my parents moved from Baton Rouge back to Akron, Ohio. Now, we had moved from Akron, Ohio to Baton Rouge when I was 6. And I have to say, I was heartbroken and shocked by this move. For three nights on our travels up north, I slept in a hotel bed with my older brother, and I just couldn't do anything else but cry myself to sleep every night. I mean, I was heartbroken. I was devastated. I distinctly remember praying each of those three nights. This was my prayer. I know it. I just, I know it for a fact. This was my prayer. I prayed three nights in tears. Jesus, if you're real, you'll let me graduate with my high school class and I'll be okay with this move. Jesus, if you're real, you'll let me graduate with my high school class and I'll be okay with this move. And I just kept crying as I, as I prayed that. And we finally arrived at our new house. I got enrolled late in, in the school year and was miserable. But by God's grace, that misery was short-lived as I met a guy named Joe, Joe if you're listening, in PE playing soccer. He invited me over to his house to ride his motorcycle. We fast became best friends and inseparable. And that is still to this moment. I haven't seen Joe probably in 40 years. Love that man. I love that man. After Christmas of my junior year, my dad announced he was looking for a new job. Wait a minute, Dad, what are you talking about? (laughs) Junior year? In March, my dad came home and asked where we'd like to move, Virginia Beach, Orange, Texas, or Lake Charles, Louisiana. Of course, I suggested Lake Charles. That was only about a two-hour drive from Baton Rouge. But, of course, I was devastated once again. How could this be happening to me again? Now I'm going to miss my senior year and and graduating with my best friend, Joe. I'll never forget it. It was a Thursday evening, and my dad was 
Leaving the next day to travel to Lake Charles and start his new job, the phone rang shortly after dinner, and my dad took the call. And he came back into the room where my mom and I and my little brother were sitting. This is what he said. This is how the conversation went. He said, you're not going to believe this. But that was so-and-so that I used to work for in Baton Rouge. And he's now working for a company across the river from Baton Rouge that built a plant just like the one I'd manage in Lake Charles. And he was wondering if they beat the offer in Lake Charles, would I consider moving to Baton Rouge to manage their new plant? So my dad's just saying this right here. We're all staring at him. So then my dad asked, do you want to move to Baton Rouge? Of course, it was a no-brainer, yes. But I didn't think it was going to take the sting out of leaving Akron. I was really heartbroken again, once again, being upended. And my dad ended up buying a new house about three blocks from our old house so I could attend the high school where my older siblings had gone. Now, the first day I got in town, which was around June 11th, I decided to walk from our new house to the high school. that was about a mile and a half away. On my walk, I passed by my old house. As I stared at that house, it hit me. I'm going to graduate with my high school class. Then the prayer that I'd prayed three years earlier hit me. I hadn't thought of it since those three nights. Jesus, if you're real, you'll let me graduate with my high school class. Did you get that? I'm, I'm standing in front of my old house. I'm walking to the high school that I had prayed to Jesus. Jesus, if you're real, you'll let me graduate with my high school class. And I'm going to graduate with my high school class. It just hit me. Man, I felt chills running through my body. And I began, I'm feeling them right now, to be honest with you, even as I'm recording this podcast. And I began uncontrollably shaking as I said aloud, Jesus, you're real. I'll never forget, it's on Goodwood Boulevard. Walking on Goodwood Boulevard. Jesus, you're real. Jesus, you're real. Jesus, you're, I kept repeating that as I walked. And soon I just froze in my tracks. I, I just couldn't keep going. No one, no one had ever knew that I had prayed that prayer to Jesus. I had never confessed it to anyone. I started thinking, oh my gosh, Jesus, you are real. There's a lot more there, but let me just end this by saying I began in earnest at that moment to find and meet Jesus. Here I was going on 18 years old. That, was, that became my life quest. I need to find and meet Jesus because he's real. Of course, I ended up leaving the high school after the fall semester to enter LSU in the spring. I did return in May for high school graduation and did, in fact, graduate in accordance with my prayer. I graduated with my high school class. I was the last name called. Never forget it. Last name called. I remember walking across that stage going, oh, my gosh. It's unbelievable. Jesus, you're real. I mean, it's just unbelievable. It's changed my life. Who was this Jesus that would uproot my family and answer my prayer? Who is this? And I searched with earnest for several years, unsuccessfully, to find Jesus either in church or in paraministry organizations, and I tried both. I had believed that he was real by faith growing up as a Catholic. I just knew that he was real. I mean, he had died for my sins and resurrected all that. I believed all that stuff. But now I knew he was real by a fulfilled prayer of seemingly impossibility of an eighth grade nobody. (laughs) He just flat out... And, and showed me my house while I was walking to the high school. It's like this in your face, Philip. I'm real. <laughs> now, my sophomore year of college, I told an older brother who was a philosophy professor that I was looking for Jesus and to find out if he knew where I could find him. I figured, well, he, my brother probably know. He didn't know. But he recommended a couple of books that if I was looking to have a spiritual experience, he suggested I read. And one of them was Be Here Now by Ram Dass, and the other one was The Tao of Physics by Frida Capra. Now, with these books read, 
I jumped in with both feet to explore the spiritual realm and find Jesus. Because my brother said, well, if you want to have a spiritual experience, I knew Jesus was in the spiritual realm. I'm finding him. But what I discovered was the ability to have a real spiritual experience filled with dark spirits, but not Jesus. And there is a spiritual realm out there that's very dark, and I, and I have been in it. And, and it is not, it's not, you don't want to go there. You do not want to go there. I met my wife on a runway during a spring collection fashion show we were both modeling in and ended up getting married a couple of years later. She was raised Baptist, and I still considered myself Catholic. We were married in a Baptist church and lived a pretty pagan life until we began having kids about five years later. My mom and dad came over for a baby visit the day after we got home from the hospital, and my mom gave me a Bible and told me I was to read it. There's a lot more there, but I think I'll leave it for now. Other than the fact that I had never heard my mom talk about the Bible zero zilch or my dad. I knew that we had one in the house, but I had never heard her talk about it. And here she's giving me the Bible saying, Philip, I think you're supposed to read this. About a year later, I picked up the Bible that my mom had given me. It was curious to read it to find out if the chronology that I'd encountered in a picture Bible that I'd read to our first daughter was correct. To me about 18 months, but I made it from Genesis to Revelation and confirmed that, in fact, chronology was the same that was in the picture Bible. <laughs> I'm an engineer. You, know, you start you start a math book in chapter 1. You don't start in chapter 17. So I started in Genesis 1, 1 to read all the way to Revelation. But I thought I'd missed something. I got to the end of it and said, man, I missed something. There's, there's something in here I'm supposed to get. And so I read it again. It took me about 15 months to read it the second time. And I've missed it again. Whatever I'm missing, I've read it again. It took me a year the next time, and then my wife started buying me these one-year Bibles, and I've read the Bible every year since. And that was started with page uh, 26 or 27. 65 now, so that gives you, a chance, gives you an idea of how many times you've read the Bible. Anyway, after having our second child, my wife and I decided to put our older daughter in a Mother's Day Out program in a Baptist church that was close to, to our house. And we ended up joining the church, and I was immersion baptized, a condition of her church membership, on my 30th birthday, something my father never really understood to the day he died, why I got baptized again. Son, you were baptized as a Catholic. I get that, Dad. But anyway, I was still looking, but I did not find Jesus in that church. Now, we left there after about three years. as a story associated with that. And we joined a Methodist church where we went for about another four or five years. We left there. And, oh, there's a whole story behind that. And were churchless for about a year, a year and a half, before looking for a Sunday school for our daughters. And we realized we needed to get our daughters Sunday school educated while we were in the world, right, of course. And I was just reading the Bible, and my wife was just happy being, just going to church, getting our kids in church and working. And we ended up settling at the chapel on the campus at LSU, which was about two blocks from my house. And in fact, was in the parking lot of the fraternity that I belonged to while I was at LSU. And I used to, we used to have people that were in the fraternity that went to that church, and we called them the Bible Belt. And I never asked them, you know, would they take me to church? I was looking for Jesus, but man, this was a non-denominational church. I'd been raised Catholic. And, you know, if you're raised Catholic, there is no other church you can go to. I mean, non-denominational evangelical, what the heck is that? I mean, that's that, you know, they spew out green slime while their heads spin around their heads, like in the Exorcist or something. There was no way I was going, but that's where we ended up going. And it just happened that this non-denominational evangelical church had a great kids Sunday school program, and there was a gifted evangelist, Donald Tabb, was still there as their founding pastor, and, and thank the Lord for Donald Tabb. It was during my second time in that church that Jesus showed up and changed my life unexpectedly. I assumed by this time that finding Jesus was something that just happened in the afterlife as a reward for faith in this life. I mean, I've been looking for him a long time, but no, no luck. So I had settled on not finding him, but was just as happy to read the Bible and go to church. 
Jesus had different plans, however. About five minutes into the service, the pastor Donald mentioned Jesus' name in passing. (laughs) I distinctly remember my name audibly being called. He just said Jesus, and in the next moment, I hear Philip. And I tried to look around. I realized I was frozen in my seat, feeling something like electricity running from the top of my head to my toes of my feet. And then I heard my name called a second time, just as plain as it, Philip. At that moment, I, I, I was instantaneously knew the voice was that of Jesus. And I knew at that same moment I was a dead man. As I sat there, frozen tears started to stream down my cheeks. And still remember, I was immobilized. I felt the Spirit of God examining the thoughts and memories of my heart and mind. I was just I was being undone. I knew that He knew, that I knew that He knew everything I'd thought hidden in my life. At that moment, it was just like, oh my gosh, I was undone. I was laid bare before him whom I must give account. Believe me, I had read the Bible enough to understand this is what was happening to me. And just then the voice came again and said, You think you know me. But talk about cry right now. Talk about condemn me. Here I am thinking I'm all spiritual. He says, You think you know me. But you have no idea who I am. Listen to what this man's about to say, and he'll tell you a little bit about me. Believe me, he had my attention. He's got my attention right now. Honestly, I can't remember what the pastor said. I only remember the Holy Spirit bringing to remembrance all the wickedness and evil I'd ever committed in my life. Up to that point, I didn't think I'd done anything wrong. Oh, boy, I had done a lot. I knew with each passing memory that I had no excuse before God. My mouth was shut and that I deserved being cast into hell as a just punishment. I was taught that from a very young age. And as I sat there, I said, Lord, just cast me into hell right now. Just do it. Just cast me into hell. I deserve it. Oh, man. It's just man, it's hard even to do just here. As the service was about to close, I remember the pastor was going to give an altar call before the end, ending the service. I had gone to Baptist church where you know, altar calls were made. Well, the guy never would call anybody up front, but he would have you raise your hand. I knew that was coming. And I felt that based upon what I had been reminded of in my life, I could never ask Jesus to take the punishment for what I had freely committed. I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. I said, God, I, I can't do it. And the voice came back again and said, Now listen to what this man's about to say, and he'll tell you what I've already done for you. Now, I knew the gospel. I'd proclaimed the gospel many times up to this point in my life. I'd heard it, but I had never heard it for myself, thinking certainly I'd never done anything deserving of death. But at this moment, I knew I not only deserved death, I deserved to be cast into hell at that moment, no questions asked, and told the Spirit I was ready to go there now. No arguments. I had committed those sins, but I could not allow Jesus, the spotless name of God, to pay the punishment I so justly deserve. I just, I couldn't. I told the Spirit I could not. As the pastor presented the gospel and asked if there was any who would like to receive life, I again told the Spirit I could not. We went back and forth several times. I finally surrendered my own pride about my own sin. And I held both hands up thanking Jesus. I'll just never forget that day. Just both hands went straight up in the air. Fountains of tears pour from my eyes, even now. There's a whole lot more there, but that will have to suffice for now. Released from the Spirit's grip, I turned for the first time to my wife who was sitting next to me. What happened to you? She said, a noodle with a shirt soaked in tears and had not a reply other than, Jesus, you did something to me. I've never been the same since. The next day, as I did my daily reading in the Bible, the Bible started talking back to me. 
I suddenly knew what I'd been missing over the years of silent reading. The Holy Spirit began opening up my mind to the scriptures. I was having an intensive experiential knowing that Jesus was alive and well while I was doing this. And I asked him, how can I keep doing what I'm doing now knowing that you are real? How do I surrender my life totally to you, Lord? I've been looking for you all this time. How do I just give myself to you? And thus began about a 25-year quest. About six months after this conversion, I was awakened at about 3 a.m. In fact, I know it was 3 a.m. because I looked at the clock. By the same voice calling my name. This time he just called it twice Road. Philip. Philip. <laughs> I popped my eyes open, looked over my clock in total darkness, and I felt the presence of the Lord. I just said, here I am, Lord, your servant is listening. Who will go for us on a mission we've determined, the voice said. And I said, here I am, Lord, send me. And the voice said, we're looking for someone to minister to students. I said, I'll do that, Lord. I'm not doing anything. I'll do that in the middle of my career. I'll do that, Lord. I'm not doing anything. And then the Spirit clearly said, Destin. But what did that mean? Destin. So I asked, you want me to move to Destin? There was no response. When I woke, I wrote down what had happened and shared it with my wife at breakfast the next morning. And she was just like, she was confused. But I did start assisting in the middle school Sunday school program. Next, I began reading historical biographies and autobiographies of famous Christian believers. I started studying the Bible for the first time and connecting with pastors that I knew who could confirm I wasn't crazy regarding my spiritual encounter with Jesus because this was just unreal. I had not heard this. So I wouldn't talk, start talking to pastors. Does this really happen to you? Does he really change your life in your middle of your career? Does he really call you to go into ministry somewhere? And does he really say, Destin, what does that mean? <laughs> and all the while trying to figure out that Destin thing. My wife just thought it was because I wanted to move to Destin to retire. Well, I was, well, I was only 37 years old. What the heck am I going to retire in Destin? No, Destin's there. Over the next 10 years, of course, I went to Destin by myself to try and discern what I'd heard as a clear call. And each time I went, I was turned away by the Holy Spirit telling me I was not yet ready. I still haven't understood that to this day, to this day. A couple of times this turning away was done by powerful, miraculous signs and manifestations that I I cannot deny. Uh, And so I'll wait. I'll I'll go into them later if you want to know about it. But I'm still waiting because these are just undeniable I mean, uh, just, I'm just still, I'm, I can't even explain it to you today. You're just so far out there. But it was clear. Uh, you know, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready for you yet. About three years into this journey, while I'm going back and forth to Destin, I attended a men's retreat where Pastor Jack Hayford was the guest speaker addressing his new book, The Spirit-Filled Life. And during the evening message, the Holy Spirit broke me once again. I was just a puddle, puddle of tears and I was broken and guys were praying over me and I was laying on the floor on the drive home the next afternoon still broken and in tears I called out to Jesus that I was ready to meet his father (laughs) that was a big deal for me in church as a child I was taught to fear God and to love Jesus who would protect me from his father and I remember Jesus saying as I was driving on cruise control take my hand and I'll take you to father twice I refused to go I couldn't face the father Knowing what I caused the son to endure. Very similar to what happened to me in the church experience. And and Jesus returned the third time, just like in the church experience. Jesus returned the third time and lovingly convinced me to take his hand and that I would be okay. Now, I'm driving down the interstate on cruise control. I literally reached my hand toward the windshield and then everything went totally black. I mean, it was just like... But I felt an inexpressible peace. It was just like, oh, wow, this is really cool. And then I saw a light in the distance. 
a bright glowing light and from that light I felt the love of God my father rush over me I don't know how long it was lasted it could have been a second five seconds ten minutes for all I know all I remember is suddenly hearing road noise and I opened my eyes I was still on the interstate on cruise control but not where I was when I closed my eyes I can tell you that I was not anywhere near where I was when I closed my eyes I continued driving in tears as I thanked father over and over again for loving me and I knew at that moment for the first time God is my father I affectionately call him father to this day Following this encounter with God, I left a uh, 20-plus year professional engineering consulting career. I started filling in as a supply teacher for small churches in the area while attending the New Orleans Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where I earned a Master of Divinity degree. Why did I go there? I have no idea. I just was kind of like, well, God, I'm surrendering to you. I guess this is what I'm supposed to do. Upon graduation, I accepted a position at a local Christian school where my kids were going to school to be the campus chaplain and head of the Bible department. I spent 12 years teaching predominantly high school seniors Bible, worldview, and apologetics. I was at the school for a total of 15 years. I entered a distance learning program while I was there at the Dallas Theological Seminary for a Doctor of Ministry degree program in organizational leadership. I had, had envisioned designing, and in fact I did envision and design and launch an institute of leadership at the school where I served before I transitioned out of education to start an executive coaching practice. I discovered in my dissertation research four enormous global shifts that occurred over the past 70 years that are currently turning the world upside down. And those shifts occurred in, uh, were philosophic, economic, technologic, and pedagogic. And that's how you teach people, pedagogic. And I wrote a book that I published on Amazon called Unleash the Millennials and Save the World that explained these shifts and what business leaders should do in terms of leadership succession or ultimately be disrupted. I then envisioned, designed, and launched two private sector leadership succession training academies, and then, of course, the pandemic hit. I've tried with all earnestness to figure out what had happened to me at my conversion, which I think I figured out pretty much in our last mini-series. What was this called a destined about, and how am I supposed to be living? And I can honestly say I was so caught up by what other people thought and had written that I never took the time to do my own study to see what God had said. I mean, I was reading a lot of books. I went to two seminaries. I read a lot of books. I read a lot of books outside of seminary in Christianity. did a lot of study in Chris, about Christianity. Trying to figure out what had happened to me and trying to figure out what this call was all about. But what I've discovered over these past two years on steroids is this is what I should have been doing all along, studying God's Word to find out what He had to say. And I do have to say that what I've discovered so far is well beyond whatever I thought. It is just so far beyond anything I've ever heard preached, anything I've ever heard taught in seminary. I've gotten out of God's Word. Now, of course, this is a great place to stop. I just, I just, I'm just taking all this in while I'm talking. Take a moment and reflect on where we find ourselves. Ram Das said, be here now. Meditating on that, I can tell you, leads nowhere. <laughs> but God's Word says in Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. Well, listen to this. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. Meditating on that leads to worship, my brothers and sisters. Oh, my God. So as we stand here, let us look out over the gulf. Now, above the water, we see an occasional passing seagull or pelican fly by in blue sky. That's it. 
Now, under the water, we know by experience and video evidence that there's an entire ecosystem teeming with life under there, including fish and creatures and plants and reefs and mountain ranges and valleys. Without breathing assistance, we would not survive long underwater. Yet, indeed, there is life under the water. And we on land exist in a different realm than that which is under the water. Well, we all occupy the same space-time cosmos, you know, the undersea creatures and the land creatures. We land creatures cannot survive unaided underwater, just as the water creatures cannot survive unaided on land. What science tells us, and believe me, I've done a lot of study in science about this topic, is that we think we live in a material-based space-time cosmos, when in fact there is actually nothing here but electromagnetic energy in the form of light. There's nothing physical here. It only appears physical because of the electromagnetic energy. I'm just telling you. When you start looking at it, it's going to freak you out. There are many very reputable and distinguished scientists that theorize we are merely a holographic projection emanating from another dimension. That's how they've come to think of it. These are these are not believing Bible-believing scientists. These are scientists looking at the evidence saying this is what this is what's really here. But before you get squirrely, that is exactly how the Bible explains it. Keep looking out over that surf while I read to you these three passages. The first one comes out of Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He's invisible. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. That's created through Jesus and for Jesus. And he, that's Jesus, is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Remember, he's, these scientists are thinking we're a projection from another dimension. That's exactly what, in him, all things hold together. There's a lot of science that would support that. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We're just looking over that ocean right now. And again, sky, occasional pelican or seagull flying by, water. You can look at your feet and there's sand. And then you can look at your feet and go, hey, I'm standing here. Jesus was born as a man. This creator who created all of this, the seen and the unseen realm, was born as a man. He walked on the earth in real space-time history. He was killed on the Roman cross. And he rose from the dead by the power of God three days later. That same power indwells us, by the way, by the Holy Spirit. And it's going to be the same power that's going to raise us from the dead. you got to get that, brothers and sisters. This is not a fantasy. This really happened. This same Jesus bodily ascended into heaven and took his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. This is who we are believing in for our salvation, this same Jesus. But how do we really know this, right? I mean, how do we really know this to be true? John tells us in 1 John 1 to 3, 10 to 15 and 18. Here you go. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus is that Word. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So anything that you're seeing, whether it's seen or unseen, Jesus made it. Verse 10. 
He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Isn't that interesting? The creator of the world was actually born from a woman into the same world he created. (laughs) It says the world did not receive him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He was born the king of the Jews. He was of the line of David, of the tribe of Judah. (laughs) He fulfilled so many prophecies. Unbelievable. But his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, that would be us, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, listen to this, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. The fact that you're a believer did not come from your will, your flesh, any desire that you had, it came from God nor the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Nobody's ever seen God. Jesus is sitting right next to God right now as a man. He came from the Father into the world. He went back to the Father after he had completed with the mission that his Father and he and the Holy Spirit had agreed that he would take upon himself. And he returned to the Father, and he's sitting there at the right, hit the right hand of God. And we know that man. We know that man by faith. And I can best summarize this by saying that there's a lot there. The Bible concerns God, mankind, the spiritual realm, and God's unique purpose for mankind involving both the heavens and the earth, the unimaginable, the infinite, the ultimate of perfection who created and sustains the heaven and the earth for a single purpose. To bring about the eternal state where God will dwell with humanity on the earth into eternity. The eternal state will be free from even the concept of evil, rebellion, sin, and death. It is an eternal state where humanity will willingly participate with God the Father and Jesus Christ, empowered by eternal life in the Holy Spirit to be one with the Godhead and co-create and rule as joint heirs of Christ over all of creation, both the heavens and the earth, forever and ever. Believers, we are not in Kansas anymore. It was told to Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, we are not in Kansas anymore. Now before we start back, let us close our eyes and allow our minds to reach out beyond dimensionality where we will see Psalm 46.10 in action. Be still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now will you please join me and keep your eyes closed as we sing together the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That heavenly core is still lingering. Let us start our way back toward the beach house with the wind in our face and the smell of crab boil in the air. Let me start by saying faith is an individual experience that one has between yourself and God. 
each believer has been individually saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We're not saved by the faith of family members or simply belonging to a church. Saving faith, as we noted, is a supernatural, born-again-in-the-spirit conversion that God performs. John tells us in John 1, 12-13, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, in both miniseries 11 and 12, we've covered much of the elementary spiritual milk of babes, as well as the solid food that leads to maturity in the faith. The difference between the two is best summarized in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 to 14, and chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. What lies in between spiritual immaturity and spiritual maturity is the very real danger of apostasy due to false teachers and false teaching. It says in Hebrews 5, 11 to 14, About this we have much to say, and this is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is still a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now, spiritual childhood is where most new Christians remain in their faith, all the way to the death. I'm, I'm, I'm convinced of this. We, most of us just remain as children. And the principal reason why I believe this is that we were never told there was something more to this new life in faith than Jesus, period. Just believe in Jesus and that's it. Well, there's a whole lot more there. Where does the writer of Hebrews say this maturity comes from? It's being skilled in the word of righteousness, having powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish between good from evil. So then let's leave, read Hebrews chapter 6, 1 and 2. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now, if you were to listen to that again, you would think that that's all that gets preached in church today. That's what I'm talking about. That's Paul saying, we've got to leave those elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity. The Apostle Paul told Timothy the most basic elementary doctrine of Christ and maturity in Christ all in one verse. This comes out of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. It says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Love is not optional. Okay, this is this is the basic, you know, this is the most elementary doctrine of Christianity. Love, it is not optional. It is the new thing that Jesus commanded. John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35. A new command I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Of course, Paul tells us in Galatians 5.14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the, the most basic doctrine of Christ is love. And that's, of course, how he starts off First Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. The charge of our aim is love. Now, here's the deal. God loves us. He loved us first. And he saved us by grace through faith. 
He gives us eternal life by the Holy Spirit. He places us eternally in Christ, where we are free from condemnation and accusation. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're guaranteed an inheritance beyond description awaiting us in heaven. Jesus is our high priest interceding on our behalf at the right hand of God 24-7. And Jesus is going to return to take his bride back to himself at any moment. And all of these are elementary doctrines of the faith. Everything I've just mentioned is what Paul had mentioned earlier, alluding to in this thing of these elementary teachings of Christ. That's all elementary. And it all starts with love. And again, where does the writer of Hebrews say this maturity comes from? He says it's being skilled in the word of righteousness, having powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And all of this goes way back to when God told Cain after his sacrifice was not accepted by God, but his brother Abel's was. This comes out of Genesis 4-7. God tells Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. The Bible is our guide to the word of righteousness of doing well in the eyes of God. And is also our guide to what is evil or doing what is contrary to the will of God. That's why he's saying you need this training in righteousness, in the word of righteousness. The word of righteousness, of course, is Christ. And the word of righteousness, of course, is the scriptures. And there's training that you go through when you study the word. Now, Paul simplifies this by saying in Romans chapter 14, verse 23, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. <laughs> you got that. Remember, God, we're supposed to do what is right in righteousness. That's in accordance with the will of God. That would be righteousness in the will of God. And what's outside of the will of God is unrighteousness. That was not what we were supposed to be doing. And Paul's saying, here's how you determine, brothers and sisters, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So Paul is putting a very big emphasis on our faith. Do, you even know what our, do we even know what our faith is? What proceeds from our faith? Oh my gosh, there's a whole whole lot Paul is teaching us. He's taught us in the last miniseries about this. But I think the two passages that best tie it down come out of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, and Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. And they tie down this spiritual maturity. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, that goes right back to that Cain verse right there, this doing what's well. How do we know what, how do we know what we're doing what is good? How do we know what we're doing by faith that is not going to be sin? It's because our minds are being renewed by the Scriptures, and by testing with our minds and with our actions, we can discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily clings, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. There you go. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Remember, anything done apart from faith is sin. And Hebrews just told us that Jesus himself is the founder 
and perfecter of our faith. We keep our eyes on Jesus. Just keep our eyes on Jesus. Yeah, but we can't see. He is seated at the right hand of God. But I can't. Yes, you can. The Holy Spirit that indwells you is in direct connect. You are already in Christ as he's seated at the right hand of God. When we finally learn the freedom to fully surrender our lives as a living sacrifice in this life and to let go of the sin that so easily entangles, then we'll be able to experience what Paul noted in spiritual maturity looked like in 1 Timothy 1, 5, where he said the aim of our charge is love. So we may ask, what kind of love are you talking about, Paul? There's lots of different kinds of love that we have in the world. Oh, Paul lets us know exactly what kind of love he's talking about. That issues from a pure heart. Ooh, it's a pure heart. And a good conscience. Ooh, that makes up a good conscience. And a sincere faith. Full surrender and daily sacrifice, my brothers and sisters, leads to a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So what are we waiting for, right? It is, it's, it's not easy. It is, it is a journey. It is a journey. I've come to learn that this is far beyond any mental ascent or intellectual ascent, learning about what others think or have experienced. This gaining a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith comes from a daily journey into the Word of God and entering His throne room of grace, spending time with Father about what is righteous in my life and what is unrighteousness in my life. And the problem is the same today as it was in the garden. The devil and his agents have always been very active in the world, creating disharmony between nations and dividing the church along doctrinal lines and invading individual believers to just disrupt us in our faith, to try to get us confused. In each new generation, it is up to individual believers to recapture the sound doctrine found in the Bible and to proclaim it and defend it openly because it's constantly being torn down. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 to 5, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up and conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Did you hear that sound doctrine accords with the words of Jesus and teaching that accords with godliness? Pretty simple. And there's a lot of people out there teaching different doctrines than that. And those teaching a different doctrine lead many astray. Why? <laughs> there is money in religion. Paul is telling us, imagining the godliness is a means of great gain. There is money in control of people in religion. Big money, big control. Huge money, huge control over masses of people. And there have been many meddler peddlers of false doctrines and teachings for well over two millennia, happy to take the money and the people and run. And that's just what's been happening in the church ever since, even in Paul's day. And here's where the truth comes to roost in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. That's the first part of the passage. And I wish we could stop there, but it goes on. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, 
into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, as I continue this testimony, as we continue heading back to the beach house, this is, this is no excuse for my behavior and abandonment of Jesus in my youth. But it's what happened to my generation. I just you know, remember I grew up believing in Jesus, but I just never could find him. My generation was the baby boomers. And we were greatly influenced by the evils and atrocities of World War II, although we didn't participate into it, it. It affected us. That war destroyed the center of Western philosophical thought, which was in primarily in Germany and in France. It just totally decimated the center of Western philosophy, which has had its thumbprint on Western cultures, morals, and ethics for over 2,600 years. It was destroyed. 2,600 years of Western philosophy in regards to morals and ethics was, was laid in ruin after World War II. It had unleashed into the world the atheistic apostasy, which had infected the European seminaries about 150 years earlier. So through the early 1800s all the way through the mid-1900s, the seminaries in Europe were being infected by atheistic theology. And that created in America an economic boom to rebuild the world devastated by war. We were the, we were the only country in the world capable of rebuilding the rest of the world because the rest of the world had been destroyed during World War II. Just check it out. It's, it's a fact. While God was not yet dead in our churches in the U.S., the educators who began filling the U.S. seminaries in almost every mainline denominational church connected with Europe soon abandoned the Word of God and began adopting European atheistic apostasy. Because these, these seminary professors got out of Europe, man. The whole, the whole place was just bombed out. They bombed, were bombed out, and they came to teach in American seminaries and it infected our seminaries. And it didn't take long for the pulpits in our churches to begin filled with pastors and priests espousing theological atheism. And with the co- church compromised, it was easy for Congress to ban the Bible and prayer in schools, legalize the pill and abortion, and open the door wide to the sex, drugs, and rock and roll of the 60s and 70s and to all who would partake. And, of course, I'm, I'm growing up in the 70s, 60s and 70s, and all this is going up around me. But no wonder why when I was growing up I couldn't find Jesus. He wasn't in the churches. He'd been locked out. Now, in the meantime, I've been raised to believe the industrial age mindset. I mean, everything in culture was an industrial age mindset. Get an education, make good grades, go to college, get married, have kids, earn more than your parents, save for retirement, and don't rock the boat. Rinse and repeat. <laughs> had nothing to do with God. had everything to do with money. And during the heyday, when I entered the workplace in the early 1980s, was the greatest economic expansion in global history. This is unbelievable. Just look it up. This is again reminding us from 1 Timothy 6, 19, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into mentally senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. What? I'd never heard of that. Making money was the whole point of life. That's what I've been taught. And where did that money go? Initially, it went to fund the Vietnam War, where a lot of great young American youth died. Second, it founded the social welfare state where fathers were no longer responsible for their kids. Third, it was the liberation of commerce and every other entity that could fill the void to freely conduct business and whatever else made money on Sundays. That was the blue laws. They were called the blue. You couldn't do anything on Sunday. Well, they got rid of the blue laws. Fourth, the freedom to kill our unwanted children before and now up to after birth. We have the freedom to kill our own kids. The freedom to easily divorce and continue the elusive quest for the perfect high, the perfect sex, 
and the most money. I'm talking about the boomer generation. We were, we were, no, we were all in. Both hands, both fists, we were all in. Six, the abandonment of the responsibility for our children to public school systems, where for two full generations they've been indoctrinating our students into atheistic socialism. Boomers were responsible. We had we let go. We just let go. We stopped. We were just chasing money. We were so enamored with what we could do and what we could make that we burned our children on the fires of Moloch. That's what it is. We burned our grandchildren on the fires on the hands of Moloch. And finally, to reach the age of retirement where I am now and look back on the wasteland of social and cultural frameworks that once held our country in high esteem, left in wreckage in the wake of our own generation's ruin and destruction. This is on us. This is on the boomer generation. Now, what is interesting is if you look at Europe and the U.S. over the past 70 years versus China and East Asia, that we've gone from the height of economic success, world dominance, everybody in the world wanted to be American, and modernization to almost a third world country in a comparison to those once third world countries who are now the envy of the world in modernization and economic success. It's just unbelievable. I've been to China. It is not rickshaw China. It seems to look at Taiwan, Singapore. It's unbelievable. Malaysia. Unbelievable. And none of this happened by accident. It has all been done in accordance with God's perfect will. That's the thing we've got to understand as believers. This did not happen by accident. We did not just go asleep at the wheel. There was a reason why we went asleep at the wheel. What? Again? Remember, the world and its systems are not of God. We'll see in our upcoming miniseries, James, speak of this in James 4.4. You adulterous people. This is James talking back in the first century. You adulterous people. Don't you know that the friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The boomers who were in love with the world. First John. 2, 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. For the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Wait a minute. I never heard that in church. (laughs) You know, go off and make a... 1 John 3, one, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is it does not know Him. Hmm. But, but what if the world does know me? <laughs> what kind of life have I been living? 1 John 3.13 Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. This is first century talking here. I'm going, well, does the world really hate me? Am I acting in such a way that the world really hates me? Well, most of my life it has not been that way. First John 5, I'm getting convicted by this even right now. First John 5, 4 to 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and I'm supposed to be able to overcome the world. And this is the kicker. 1 John 5.19 We know that we are from God and the whole world 
lies in the power of the evil one. And again, I'll just say, Boomer Generation, we were all in for the world. We were all in there with the devil, doing his will to, to totally wreck our country and, and who knows what else we've done in the world. But it wasn't just us. It's the whole world in on this. And of course, as we near the beach house, that crab boil smell has turned into the smell of fresh boiled shrimp and crabs, grilled flounder, and steamed veggies being put out at the serving table. I know that those smells are drawing away our attention. It's drawing away mine. But let's stop here for a moment so I can tie this off and we can continue conversations as you take your spots under the canopies. What we've learned from this mini-series is the seriousness and need to hold on to sound doctrine, to love others, and to pursue godliness. And what I've tried to explain in my testimony and sharing about cultural changes we've all witnessed is that in the midst of the world, God is still working in rescuing people like me and you out of the world and into his family. But that call from heaven and Jesus returning is drawing ever nearer. So as we break for lunch, please take a moment to meditate on how we can each strive toward maturity and so achieve love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, as Paul commanded Timothy. Our spouses, children, and grandchildren are watching us. May we be good stewards of the gifts we've been given and reflect Jesus to this lost and dying world. Oh, and by the way, your kids and grandkids who were able to make their way down here today are waiting for you on the back porch in the beach house. <laughs> I forgot to tell you that, just in case you weren't, weren't expecting it. We'll have a blessing and crank up some great beach praise tunes once we start serving. And Tommy, would you mind grabbing that mic right there at the service? That's right. And would you say a blessing as we line up? Thank you. Now, while the beach crowd is heading for the beach house to connect with their family members, we are ready to feast with us. Let me say thank you for joining us on this walk on the beach. I hope you see that we aren't battling amongst ourselves, or really even battling against the world. Our biggest challenge is battling within. We've been commanded to surrender and offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Our flesh, the world, and the devil want no part of that. But John tells us in 1 John 5, 4, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Thank you, Jesus. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. We have already overcome the world. Our faith, Jesus in us, has overcome the world for us. Brothers and sisters, we already have victory in Christ over the world. May we hold on to Christ and forsake the world from this day till we meet Jesus in the air. And may we be accompanied by many who believe our message of truth in the gospel. On our next episode, we'll be beginning a new mini-series covering the book of James to the book of Jude. Until then, thank you for listening. Subscribe, follow, rate, and review the show. Show notes and the resources are found on my website, wayofthebible.com. Join me on the path. Write me a note. I'd love to hear from you. My email address is drz, that's D-R-Z, at wayofthebible.com. And let me end this episode as I end all my episodes by saying, simply believe God and follow Jesus. Live as a child of light, overflowing with living water in the will of God, being joyful always, praying continually, and thankful in all circumstances. Be blessed, my brothers and sisters. 
We hope this episode of Way of the Bible has you feeling inspired and empowered to simply believe God and follow Jesus. Remember to search the scriptures to confirm what you've heard today. And join us next episode as we continue to discover together the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden in Christ and be transformed daily by the renewing of your mind. Knowing God's will for you is a life filled with joy, prayer, and thanksgiving. Be blessed.